Do keep your Bibles open this morning. We'll, we'll be uh, flicking between some of these early chapters of Revelation. I'll try to make clear the references as I read from them so that you can find them in your Bibles this morning. But we're simply considering today a, a recap of Revelation chapters 1 to 7 before we, as I say, properly get into it again, God willing, this evening. Revelation is a book that needs to be handled with care. Maybe from time to time you buy something and on the box of the item you've bought or on a label stuck on the side of it, those are the instructions. Handle with care. The cooks who prepared our barbecue dinner last night uh, had to know how to handle the barbecue. They had to handle it with care. And thankfully the result was a very enjoyable meal. Had they not handled it with care, uh, the result might have been very different. Things could have turned out a mess. There might even have been some singed eyebrows. Uh, They had to handle it with care. Uh, The book of Revelation likewise needs to be handled with care. Some Christians have made a mess out of Revelation. They've come to it with their own ideas or their own uh, biases about what it means or what they want it to mean. And they've ended up misrepresenting or misunderstanding this book. Other Christians, perhaps not wanting to make those mistakes, they they ignore Revelation altogether and sort of give up on it and say, well, you know, there's a lot of very difficult stuff there. It's too hard for most of us to understand. But Revelation is not a book to be ignored and it's not a book to be manipulated uh, to suit our own preferences. Revelation is a book about Jesus Christ. That's what the very first verse of the book says. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. So don't miss the importance of those opening words, friends. This book is about Jesus Christ. It's about his position today. It's about what he is doing in our world now. It's about what he will do in our world in the future. And Revelation was not written with the purpose of baffling Christians. It was actually written with the purpose of encouraging Christians. The first Christians to read it would have been uh, the the Christians of the early church scattered across the Roman Empire towards the end of the first century AD. Hardly any of them had political power or influence. Some of them were already being persecuted physically or in other ways for their faith. And all of them were feeling the pressure to compromise in a society overrun with idolatry and sexual immorality. Does any of that sound familiar? But Revelation was written to change the perspective of these struggling Christians. It was written to remind them that above all the influencers, the influencers of their society, above even the Roman emperor himself, there is another king. The Lord Jesus Christ, he is alive, he is resurrected and he is reigning forevermore and he is in full control of our world. And the day will come when he will bring an end to our world as we know it. And that in a nutshell, friends, is what Revelation teaches us. It's designed to change our perspective. If our perspective has become too human focused or or too horizontal, so to speak. There's a wonderful promise for us. I wonder, did you notice it at the beginning of the book? Chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and to keep what is written in it. And so far from baffling us, 
Revelation promises to be a blessing for us, to encourage us in our Christian faith. And so tonight, God willing, we will begin a new section of the book in chapter 8. But before we do that, we're going to uh, take a a sort of a quick run through the (coughs) the first seven or so chapters of the book and remind ourselves of what we've seen so far. Now, of course, we can't cover everything. You'll be pleased to hear this is not going to be I hope the longest sermon you've ever heard um, or the longest sermon ever preached, I should say. Uh, But we're going to just focus in on a few things that we see in the first seven chapters of the book uh, to to set the scene for what we will get to tonight. And so first of all, uh, today, I want to think about the lamb slain but standing. The lamb slain but standing. Jesus Christ is, of course, described in many different ways in the book of Revelation. In chapter 1, verse 8, for example, he describes himself this way. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Alpha and Omega are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. And so it's a way of emphasizing, as Jesus does there, that he is eternal. That he has always been and always will be. He is God. But the way that Jesus is most frequently described in Revelation is as the Lamb. 30 times that description of Jesus is used in the book, the Lamb. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 5 and verse 6. If you have your Bibles open there, Revelation 5 and verse 6. And this is part of the, the vision of the heavenly throne that John receives. And it says there, chapter 5, verse 6, Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Notice that description, standing as though it had been slain. And the word slain is, is putting it mildly in English. This lamb has been butchered. This lamb has been slaughtered. It has gone through a deadly ordeal. Its blood has been shed. And that's a picture, of course, for us of Christ and all that he endured on the cross, some of which we sang about earlier in Psalm 22, taking the punishment that his people's sin deserved, having his blood shed to redeem us. But the lamb hasn't just been slain. The lamb is now standing standing and that is a position of strength that's a position of of triumph and of victory the lamb has gone through the deadly suffering and slaughter and yet the lamb is standing the lamb is not dead the lamb is alive the lamb is not defeated the lamb is triumphant and victorious and the message for john's readers of course in the first instance is that that is the savior that you worship each week As you gather away from the guilds and away from the the sexual immorality of your cities and away from all the pressures to conform to the world, as you gather together, you're worshipping a victorious king. You're not worshipping a memory. You're you're not worshipping a hope, an empty human hope. You're worshipping a glorious, triumphant king. And not only that, friends, but what John is, what Revelation rather is telling us as well is that the pattern of what Christ has gone through is the same pattern that we, his followers, will go through. 
He's, he's telling us here that suffering like the Saviour leads to triumph through the Saviour. Suffering like the Saviour leads to triumph through the Saviour. Like Christ, as, as Christians in this world, we suffer now, but we will be triumphant in the end. Now, of course, what Jesus suffered on the cross was unique. Unique both in the extremity of, his, of the pain and unique also in what it accomplished. We, we do not suffer in the exact same way as Christ did on the cross. Of course, his death was unique. But nonetheless, believers in this life do suffer. And John is telling us here that Jesus' death and resurrection is a pattern for us of the course that our lives in this earth and beyond this earth will follow. We suffer now perhaps persecution of one kind or another for our faith. Brothers and sisters in places like Pakistan and Afghanistan and North Korea suffer far worse persecution for their faith. We suffer perhaps some of the same things that the world around us suffers. Illness, loss, bereavement. We sacrifice at times for the cause of Christ and his kingdom. But friends, this vision of the Lamb tells us that our suffering will give way to our triumph. That if you are in Christ, united to him by faith, his victory will one day be ours as well. And of course, the fact that he has suffered means that he can sympathise with us when we suffer. What an encouragement it is today to know that Jesus sympathises with you in every weakness, every physical or spiritual blow, every betrayal, every disappointment, every temptation that we face. Jesus has suffered all of it as well and so much more. And so, friends, Revelation, first and foremost, wants to tell us today, remember the lamb slain but standing when you face temptation this week. Remember the lamb slain but standing when you feel exhausted or discouraged physically or spiritually. Remember the lamb when physical pain of one kind or another is taking its toll and feels like it will never end. Remember the lamb slain but standing when people hate you or mock you or ostracize you for your faith. Remember the lamb. And what we see as well about this lamb is that having been slain and having conquered, he, he rightly receives the worship of heaven. If you look at chapter 5 verse 13, I, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honour and glory and might forever and ever. This Lamb for all that he is, for all that he has accomplished, he receives all the praise that heaven can give. They adore him, they bow down before him, they worship him. And the challenge for those of us reading this book today is to consider whether he receives all our praise and all our adoration. Do you know and love and trust this lamb. Slain but standing. Is it your life's purpose to joyfully serve him. Along with all his people. Because of all that he's done for you. John's readers had plenty that could distract them from worship and service of the lamb. 
as do we. The passing leisure pursuits and pleasures and trivialities and worries of life in this world. None of them can compare, friends, with the glory of the Lamb. None of them should consume us in a way that worship and service of our Lamb should consume us. And above all else, that is what Revelation wants us to see and to take into our lives each day. Remember the Lamb, slain but standing. Another thing that we saw in the first seven chapters of Revelation is the Lamb speaking to his church The Lamb speaking to his church. And this comes particularly from chapters 2 and 3. If you have those at the hand. After Jesus first speaks to John in chapter 1. He gives him seven letters written to seven churches. And if you remember anything at all about Revelation. You'll remember that seven is a number that keeps coming up. It's the number symbolizing completion and perfection. A a whole, a total, a, a complete number. Uh, And so it's symbolic, really, of of some of the most important things to to take note of in this book. Uh, And it tells us that the whole content of the book, seven letters to seven churches, in fact, it's not that that the letters, each of them, are, are just for that one particular church. The fact that there were seven letters to seven churches as part of this bigger book, it tells us that the whole of Revelation is for the whole of the church. The whole of Revelation is for the whole of the church. Let me just remind you of some of the key points from those seven letters. First of all, Jesus emphasized to all of the churches that he knew them. That he knew their unique circumstances, their, their particular weaknesses, their particular temptations. Revelation 2 verse 1, for example. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write. And then he says in verse 2. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. Likewise to Pergamum, chapter 2, verse 13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. This was a church facing intense pressure because of the the false teaching and the immorality of their city. Satan's throne was there, Jesus says. And he says, I know that. I know the situation you're in. And he says the same to all of the churches. I know you. I know what you're dealing with. I know how you're getting on. Sometimes people say, I know. And we know that they really don't know. They haven't gone through what we're going through. They're they're trying to find something to say, but, but they don't understand. But when Jesus says, I know, he really knows. He's the lamb. Slain but standing, with seven horns and seven eyes, meaning he has perfect knowledge of our world. And there's nothing we as the church face today that surprises him or which, as it were, he can't fully get his head round, as we would say. He knows it all. And so he's best placed to speak to our situations. Another thing that we saw from Jesus speaking to the seven churches is that He rebukes our feelings. He rebukes our feelings. Uh, Most of the seven churches were were given something to work on or even repent of when Jesus spoke to them. In Ephesus, you might remember, uh, Jesus commends them for being 
for holding fast to, to doctrine, to the, to the truth of the gospel. Not all the churches had done that, but Ephesus had. And yet Jesus uh, rebukes them because Ephesus, if you remember, had become all head and no heart, so to speak. Jesus says in Revelation 2 verse 4, you have abandoned the love you had at first. Perhaps love for one another. Love for the world around them in the sense of going to the world and, and witnessing to the world. And so Jesus says to them, remember from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. Ephesus is the church that perhaps reformed congregations are perhaps most in danger of becoming. We value doctrine. We want the teaching of God's word to be central. We, we want to understand it properly. But that should never come at the expense of love for the needs of one another and concern for the world around us. It shouldn't be both, or sorry, it shouldn't be one or the other, it should be both. Other churches, of course, had made the opposite mistake to Ephesus, particularly Pergamum and Thyatira. The problem those churches had, if you remember, was they were too tolerant. When people said things to them like, you know, if you want to remain part of our guild, which involves sacrifice or pagan sacrifices or pagan worship, that's fine. You <coughs> You can do that. Go to the guild on Saturday. Go to church on Sunday. What's the problem? Or when people said, you know, you can still be a Christian and sleep with whoever you like. Or why aren't you celebrating our pagan festivals and marching in our parades and worshipping our emperor? These churches were caving in to those pressures. They were tolerating particular false teachings and lifestyles. And to them also, Jesus' command was simple. Revelation 2 verse 16. Repent. Cut it out. Stop tolerating sin. Or putting up with false teaching that would even celebrate some particular sins. And again, that is a challenge for the church in our society today. Which is not only tolerating, but promoting and enforcing and, and demanding not only do we tolerate certain lifestyles the Bible calls sinful, but that we celebrate them. And some churches are in danger of caving in on that issue. Other churches that Jesus wrote to were faithfully and joyfully continuing their witness, despite the obstacles, despite the pressures. To the church in Philadelphia, Jesus said in Revelation 3 verse 8, Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power and yet you have kept my word and not denied my name. And to such churches, Jesus says, I've opened the door for your witness and for your existence. I've given you an opportunity to faithfully witness in my name. Don't be discouraged. Don't give up. Keep using the opportunities that you have. And that leads on to the last thing that we see in, the, in what Jesus said to the seven churches. And that was a promise of reward. A promise of eternal life. To every church, Jesus makes a promise. He says to the one who conquers or who perseveres. Chapter 2, verse 7, for example. <coughs> to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And similar promises are made by Jesus to the other churches as well. 
And so, friends, whilst the seven letters to the seven churches are incredibly searching and challenging, they're also wonderfully encouraging. Jesus knows knows us and he, can, he will give us the strength to keep on going so that we can conquer, so that we can have everlasting life. And as we head into what I would, uh, what I would consider a new church year, as we invite our neighbours and friends to, to join us uh, for worship or to, to get to know God's word a little better at one-to-one or in smaller groups, as we pray for our nation and long for revival and as we in a few weeks time as we plan to do recommit ourselves in covenant to the kingship of Christ remember the words of Jesus to his churches I know where you dwell Jesus says to us this morning I know the spiritual needs of Dromore RP Church better than any of you members elders anybody I'm your shepherd I'm your king I'm your redeemer And I believe, as I said 18 months ago when I first preached in Revelation, that Jesus has set before us in Dromore, as he has done for many churches around us, an open door. We have freedom to proclaim the gospel. We have freedom to gather for worship. We find ourselves in a time where people are in great need. And they're going to be in more need in the weeks and months to come. And if we hold fast and if we remain faithful... Jesus will use our witness in this place for whatever he purposes, whatever he pleases. The Lamb speaking to the churches. Third thing we saw in these opening chapters of Revelation, the Lamb opening the seven seals. He spoke to the seven churches and then he opened the seven seals. We go from the seven, uh, different cycles of seven in, in the book of Revelation uh, and so in chapter 5, verse 1, you'll notice that in John's vision of, a, of heaven's throne, chapter 5, verse 1, uh, there is this scroll in the right hand of God. And scrolls in the ancient world were often sealed with a wax seal. And whoever had written on the scroll would then stamp it with their own personal mark of authenticity. And that told the reader whose plans, whose will was contained in the scroll. This scroll that John sees contains the will of God, the plans of God for the rest of history. And it was sealed with seven seals, we're told. And only the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, is worthy to take this scroll, the, the plans of God, and to execute those plans. And so in Revelation chapter 6, we see the Lamb opening the seals. And the first four seals all produce a rider on a horse. And these four riders, friends, they symbolize the presence of evil in our world between the first and second comings of Jesus. We thought more about this in depth last year. I'll just go over it very briefly now. Uh, the first horse is white. And as I said at the time, I think the best interpretation of that is that the rider on the white horse symbolizes Satan and false teachers, bringing with them Uh, False gospels into the world which deceive the world into sin. The Bible says elsewhere that Satan masquerades as an angel of light. That's why he's perhaps in, in white here on this horse. He deceives the world and he has a measure of authority in this world. It says this first writer had a crown. Uh, elsewhere the Bible describes Satan as the ruler of the prince of the power of the air. Uh, and so he does have dominion in this world. He deceives then the red horse, 
symbolizes bloodshed and war and conflict. We're told that he had the authority to take peace from the earth. Chapter 6 verse 4. The black horse symbolizes economic strife. Chapter 6 verse 6 says a quart of wheat for a denarius. That's, that pricing indicates a cost of living crisis to put it in modern language. That's prices as we're all too aware right now going through the roof. And then there's the pale horse symbolizing illness and pain and suffering. All of which leads to death itself. Now that's all pretty bleak. But these horses and riders, friends, they they don't just appear on the earth and run amok based on their own, uh, according to their own desires. It's emphasized to us here in chapter 6 that these riders and horses, they are limited. They are under the control of the Lamb. Look at verse 8. They were given authority over a fourth of the earth. There is a limit to how much damage they can do. And you'll see several times it says they were permitted to do certain things. They only come upon the earth because the lamb calls for them to come upon the earth. And they are restrained by the lamb. The lamb is still in charge. Even in our world that includes evil and and suffering and devastation. It is not as bad as it could be. It is under the control of the lamb. The fifth seal produces something entirely different. Uh, It shows us the patient prayers of the Lamb's martyred saints. Believers who have died, whose souls have gone into the glorious presence of Jesus in heaven. If you look at chapter 6 verse 10. It says, They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on the earth? And so these martyrs, although they're in heaven, There's still an urgency to their prayers. They long to see justice done upon the earth. They long to see God's judgment poured out upon the enemies of God's kingdom. And in chapter 6 verse 11 they're told to rest a little longer. Until uh, the time comes for God's judgment. The sixth seal brings us right to the brink of judgment day itself. The wrath of the lamb about to be poured out in the world. Look at chapter 6, verse 15. The kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? And ultimately, friends, This is the warning that Revelation gives to anyone who hasn't yet put their trust in the Lamb. Will you be able to stand when the Lamb comes in his wrath? Will you be ready? Will you welcome the Lord Jesus back to this earth? Or will you be so desperate to escape that you realize in that moment you would rather have a mountain crush you than have to look into the face of your judge? Knowing that in that moment you will know that you deserve the judgment that that lamb will bring upon you. The lamb has opened the seals. The plans of God for this universe are in motion. And they include plans for judgment. Some of which our world is already experiencing. 
That's what the four riders and the horses symbolize. We'll find more about judgment this evening when we get to chapter 8. But those, the worst of that judgment is still to come on the day of the wrath of the Lamb. If you're not ready for that day, get ready now by repenting of your sin and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we've seen in Revelation the Lamb slain but standing, the Lamb speaking to his churches, the Lamb opening the seals, and fourthly and finally, we've seen the Lamb we've seen that the Lamb has sealed his saints. The Lamb has sealed his saints. As we read through the opening of the seals and we think about all this judgment and devastation being brought upon the earth, the question comes to our minds what about the church? What about the people of Jesus Christ? who are still in this world full of all these difficulties. Well, chapter 7 answers for us the position of the church in the midst of all of this. Chapter 7 gives us this vision of the 144,000 sealed. And like pretty much every other number that you find in Revelation, I believe that 144,000 is best understood as a symbolic number. 12 times 12 times 1,000. A thousand is a number of completion or of wholeness in the Bible. You have 12 um, tribes of Israel in the Old Testament. You have 12 apostles in the New Testament. And so perhaps that symbolizes the church across all spheres of time. And so the 144,000 friends, I believe, is a picture of the whole church of Jesus Christ throughout history. This is all of God's people gathered together as the true church. And in Revelation 7, we're told that before the seals were broken, before the plans of God were commenced, were put into motion in our world, the church of God was sealed. We were chosen, we were set apart, we were marked out by God so that no matter matter what devastation comes upon the earth, some of which even we ourselves will experience, we are nonetheless marked out and we are chosen And our future, our destiny, our eternal security is in place. Just look at chapter 7 verse 3. This is an angel speaking in heaven and he says, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. We'll see this evening harm coming to the earth and the sea and the trees. It was harm also done by the four riders on the four horses in chapter 6. But here we're told that before any of that harm could be done, God has sealed his servants. The four riders on the four horses, the four angels that will blow the trumpets this evening, they can't lift a finger. The forces of darkness and death can't touch one hair on one head until the people of God have been marked out. And so Revelation 7, friends, is taking us back in time to before the world even came into existence. Paul says in Ephesians 1 verse 4, He, that is God the Father, chose us in him, that's Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. If you're a Christian here this morning, you have been sealed Since before the foundations of the world. You've been chosen. You've been marked off. Before God even said. Let there be light. 
This seal that is spoken of here, it's not a physical mark. It's a spiritual mark. The seal of God in the Christian life is the Holy Spirit. Who comes to dwell in us, who births new life in us, who unites us to the Lord Jesus Christ, to the Lamb. So that despite the troubles and evils that we do have to face in this world, along with everybody else, nonetheless, we can never be separated from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so do you see, friends, how it is a blessing to read the words of Revelation? Does it not comfort you to know, dear Christian, that even though you sometimes stumble over the same silly sins again and again, even though you are sometimes discouraged by the mess our world is in, never mind the mess the living room is in, that nonetheless you are sealed. Your salvation cannot be lost. God chose you before he even created the world. Before you were even capable of doing right or wrong, God chose to love you and to seal you and to keep you forever. And when the great day of the wrath of the Lamb comes, it will be those who have been sealed and only those who have been sealed who will be able to stand, who will enjoy the world that the Lamb will make afresh. Well, this has been a whistle-stop tour of about a quarter of the book of Revelation. I hope it's brought back into your mind some of the the wonderful reasons we have to be studying it. But above all, friends, let it fix our minds and hearts upon our great Saviour, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Lamb who was slain but is standing and is alive forevermore. Let's live with the perspective that Revelation gives us, the perspective of heaven and all the angels and saints who are already there who cry out, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. To receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honour and glory and blessing. Amen.